everybody who listens to futureprimitive.org. I have the pleasure today to be looking into the eyes of Mark Winnie. From 1979 to 2003, Mark Winnie was the executive director of the Hartford Food System, a private nonprofit agency that works on food and hunger issue in Hartford, Connecticut area. Mark is co-founder of a number of food and agriculture policy groups, including the City of Hartford Food Policy Commission, the Connecticut Food Policy Council, and Hunger Connecticut, and the National Community Food Service Coalition. He was an organizer and chairman of the Working Lands Alliance, a statewide coalition working to preserve Connecticut's farmland and is founder of the Connecticut Farmland Trust. Mark was a member of the United States delegation to the 2000 World Conference on Food Security in Rome. Mark currently writes, speaks and consults extensively on food system topics, including hunger and food insecurity, local and regional agriculture, community food assessment, and food policy. Mark uh, is an author. He has written two books I'm holding in my hands. One is Food Rebels. It's the latest one, Food Rebels, Guerrilla Gardeners, and Smart Cooking Mamas, fighting back in an age of industrial agriculture. And his first book is Closing the Food Gap, Resetting the Table in the Land of Plenty. Wow, so how... (laughs) Next time I'll give you a shorter biography. Okay, (laughs) we can take some out. But in any case... Um, how do we reset the table or not we but how do we solve the problem together in resetting the table uh, of people who are under the poverty level well I think part of that will there's many many parts to that answer Um, there's no one answer there's no one size fits all approach But I do think that um, we need to be refocusing our work and our thinking and our our, um, analysis around what the causes are. Uh, Too much of the effort around, you know, that one part of our food problem in the world, which is not having enough food for particularly poor people, uh, has to do with poverty. Um, and it also has to do with food distribution. And rather than always focus, uh, or too often focus, say, on uh, food relief or hunger relief, which is often necessary, uh, but it should be a short-term solution, we need to be refocusing on developing people's capacity to produce and distribute and uh, more of their own food and to manage their whole food supply, manage the, what we kind of re- generally refer to as the food system. Um, we haven't done that. We've relied on rather short-term solutions uh, in the United States, 
Uh, for instance, we spend an inordinate amount of time and money on uh, private and public hunger relief, uh, which is designed to you know, ameliorate uh, the conditions of, of poverty, namely to address hunger, but uh, they never go to the cause. And when we, until we start to do that, I think we're going to continue to have this uh, yawning food gap. Okay, so uh, we might say that um, the way that uh, quote-unquote hunger relief is handled uh, just fosters diseases. Well, it, to some extent that would be true, but I think it, it, it fosters dependency. It doesn't, it doesn't encourage uh, the sustainable development of uh, communities to uh, help themselves to meet their own food needs. Uh, it is. Uh, it often plays too much to uh, you know, large food sectors like our our large commodity producers in the United States. Uh, too much of our food system around the world, including U.S. food policy, favors large corn producers, large rice producers, large soybean producers. It's you know our so much of our uh, country's. Uh, public uh, dollars for uh, are directed toward those farmers to essentially to subsidize them um, and not enough is being used to and that as we know we've heard many stories about this we know that that's in, at least a part of the reason that obesity is the raging disease that it is in this country now with uh, you know 65 percent of us now being overweight or obese uh, the numbers of in terms of obesity for children is striking alarming tragic it's uh you know, in the area of, of um, you know, up to 25%, depend on different age groups for children. And that's going to definitely lead to, um, you know, serious uh, long-term illnesses like diabetes when they, when and you're already beginning to see it in children today. So that's part of the problem. And I think also a kind of a heavy focus on, um, you know, large uh, American food corporations um, such as Monsanto um, and others wanting to export uh, to developing nations um, their biotechnology, genetically modified seeds, for instance. Um, it seems as if we're not looking at the cause. We're not looking at the individual need, individual in the sense of of a, a larger community or country. We're looking at how we, we use technology, which is frankly suspect in our own country, and then looking at how we can export it and make use of it somewhere else. Well, who profits from that? Well, it's the corporation in the United States, or sometimes there are global corporations. It's not necessarily the people who are in need. So a lot of misguided policies, a lot of uh, favoritism toward uh, large corporate interests. Yeah, I mean, one of my big, um, one of my big uh, thoughts is that uh, food is the number one addiction in the world. I mean, mm. forget uh, alcohol and all the mm -hmm. other things. Um, and this addiction is being exported all over the place. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have this idea that uh, uh, there's an enormous amount of mind control going on through industrial food. 
So, if you wish, might you speak to that? Well, I think it, I mean food is addictive in the sense that we I, I think obesity and and uh, diet related illnesses are are probably now the number one public health problem in the United States and fast becoming the number one public health problem across the world, um, eclipsing tobacco and alcohol as other categories of public health problems. Uh, so I think you're, you know, you're certainly right in that regard. You know, we know that, for instance, that uh, you know, one, one obvious problem related to our, again, as I was saying earlier, related to our, the, the rise in obesity um, has been the, uh, you know, the fact that we, high fructose corn syrup has come onto the market and has become an essential ingredient for the most part in, in a lot of our processed food. Um, and while I'm not, the jury might still be out on whether or not that substance itself is addictive, um, it has led to cheap uh, sweeteners. Uh, it's become, a, a, again, a major ingredient in processed food. We've become over-reliant on processed food. Uh, we don't even know oftentimes what is in the food that we're buying or what in the food that we're eating. So we have, again, you know, that has, that has related very much to a lot of the public policies that have been created um, since the 1970s, our, our agricultural policies, our food policies, and the simple fact that none of those policies are related to our own health. Um, they're not related to human health. They're saying, okay, how can we support a relatively small number of large farmers? Um, rather than how do we meet the, the health needs of a nation, of a world. And if we thought about it that way, if we started with health as the number one goal that we want to promote, we would not have the kind of farm and food policies that we now have in this country. Well, this leads me um, to the word intimacy. <laughs> Absolutely. And... Uh, I found here uh, a passage in your book that uh, I wanted to read um, where it's less in doubt and stems partially from the energy impact debate is the near legendary status according, according to local, whether locally produced food and distributed food and many definitions of local abound staves off the inevitability of global warming. Legions of consumers are seeking it out. And I'll jump because you say, if true intimacy between two or more people, whether in a family, between lovers and amongst friends, or with a higher being is one of the most rewarding of all human experiences, then the intimacy that might exist between a person and non-human things, animal, plants, landscapes, may offer similar rewards. And so I think a lot of your intimacy with your garden, you, mm -hmm. Mark, your mm -hmm. intimacy mm -hmm. with your yes. garden, the intimacy of, that I feel when I go to a farmer's market, and perhaps the lack of intimacy that somebody is trying to to fill by when eating a pack of Doritos. I know. Let's go. Uh, there's yeah, I I hit on this idea of intimacy just because I as I thought more about our food system, I thought about what really matters to me. Um, is it getting cheap food? Is it getting 
even you know what whatever the best food is uh is it getting um, organic food i wasn't you know, i kept thinking well all those things are i mean there's certain parts of that that i like and some that i don't but what it really came down to was this simple idea of intimacy you know what really matters to us as human beings that one-on-one relationship we have with another person or with a family or with a small community um, that extends as well to food uh, and it extends as well to our relationship to nature and where does food come from it comes from nature you know that's very much uh, in, you know the, the food system which doesn't sound like a very intimate term, but at least it describes all those pieces, all those dots, all those kind of components out there that give us our sustenance. I can't think of anything in my experience that's more intimate, more rewarding than sitting down with a group of friends, uh, having prepared a meal together uh, with food that's largely from your own garden or maybe from the farmer's market, or uh, you know some, and you can you can talk. There might be a dozen ingredients, let's say, in that comprised in the dishes that make up that that meal together, and that you can actually have a conversation about each one of them. Uh, that you can actually uh, identify where that item has come from. You might know the farmer, for instance. You might know the rancher if it's meat you're eating. Uh, you. You will know the place itself. And it's amazing to have that kind of conversation. And here's where, you know, and I, and I, I just don't, you, our, our global industrial food system might be able to produce food a lot cheaper. It might be able to produce food safely. Uh, it might be able to, you know, do a lot of things that make our lives arguably a little bit easier and a little bit more convenient. But it will never be able to capture that kind of intimacy that we want when we sit down together and discuss a meal, share a meal, taste that meal, and you know, draw out that inherent deliciousness from the food, you know, which sometimes we don't even, unfortunately, talk about food in terms of how it tastes and whether or not it's really delicious. <laughs> now, of course, when I talk this way, I will, I will open myself up to charges of elitism, you know, food elitism. And that's been a sort of an unfortunate uh, label that's been, um, you know, stuck on a lot of us. Now, wait, is intimacy (laughs) elitist? Oh, that's it. It's not. You know, what what is, uh, you know, what could be elitist about intimacy? Um, Unless I'm uh, talking about being intimate with with famous movie stars. (laughs) None of whom would ever return my phone calls anyway, so I'm not worried about that subject. But nevertheless, I think so that you know we're not talking. We're talking about you know the you know the the value, the the emotion, the um, the uh, the you know the the even you know the intellectual understanding that we derive from being close to something. I mean, I think the definite you know what analysis does. Analysis always sort of puts puts too much distance between ourself and an object that we desire. You know, what is beautiful? It's something that we see as beautiful, but it becomes more beautiful the closer we get to it and the more intimate we become with it. Mm-hmm. That is what food is, and that's the, you know, that's the ideal we're striving for. And there's nothing in my, that I can uh, see in that kind of relationship that uh, defines me as an elitist. Um, so I reject that notion completely, and I think others who might 
um, fall or feel guilty that their being elitist should should not feel that way at all. Right, and uh, you know, I I want to throw this at you because uh, you speak about uh, this uh, this parable in the Brothers Karamazov, and uh, it's um, the Grand Inquisitor, the part about the Grand Inquisitor. And uh, I'd like you to talk about that. I'll just throw this thing at you. Maybe, maybe the people were more interested in the bread than in the thoughts of Jesus Christ because the bread was something they could be intimate with. Well, yes. And, yeah, but I want to, I've been accused of being a, you know, in addition to being an elitist, maybe an intellectual intellectual <laughs> snob. No, I love this. Because I uh, actually quote uh, the, from the Brothers Karamazov, and uh, written by Fyodor Dostoevsky, whose name I still can't spell very well. I was just struck by the way that the Grand Inquisitor uh, sounded so much like the industrial food system, which was telling us that unless we allow them to do what they want, um, you know, we're going to starve to death. So we have to owe them our allegiance. We have to submit, and we have to allow them to use biotechnology, antibiotics, um, all manner of agro-industrial uh, chemicals, um, and uh, uh, factory farms. All the all the uh, you know the facilities and the realities of the industrial food system that we have become rather dependent on. And in the process of them saying that, they're saying, well, you're going to give up your freedom. You're going to give up your democracy Mm -hmm. because you're not going to have any right to say how we operate any of these things or what we do or what we use. Uh, Please get off our backs is what they're saying when it comes to government regulation. Um, Don't try to restrict us in any way. Uh, So that's, that's the message, very clear. Uh, clearly, that the um, industrial food system is putting out there. You know, the question they put forward, and the rhetorical one, is who will feed a hungry world? And of course, we know that by the year 2050, there's going to be about nine and a half billion people on the planet. That's about a 50% increase in the number of people that we have today. And many agronomists tell us that it's going to be really problematic as to how we feed those people. If we look at the amount of land, we look at current technology, current agricultural practices, they may not be sufficient to meet the food needs of that many people. So, haha, the industrial food system, like uh, you know, Superman descending from the heavens, uh, lands among us and says, well, follow me, we will take care of you, but in return, you have to give up your freedom and you have to give up your rights as democratic citizens. So that, to me, is not so far-fetched. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a nightmarish uh, sci-fi kind of situation. Uh, it's a reality that we see acted out every day in the U.S. Congress, uh, in the European Union, in state legislators, legislatures around the country, um, we see it being discussed, debated, and acted on in Mexican states. Uh, this kind of debate around food sovereignty, who has the right to produce food, what kind of food, uh, do I have to kowtow to some large food corporation, um, should I allow Walmart to, be, to, to basically be my only provider of food just because it's cheap? 
So, you know, these are the questions that, you know, free people have to wrestle with. And they have to have access to decision-making. And they have to be allowed into the discussion, into the debate. And, you know, I won't even necessarily claim absolutely unequivocally that genetically modified food, for instance, is bad. But I want to be treated like an, you know, an adult, an educated layperson who should be allowed to be brought into the discussion and have my voice heard. And you can convince me, if you like, and I'll listen to your arguments. That's not how it's played out today. I mean, the way it's played out today is the industrial food system treats us the same way that it raises mushrooms, keeps us in the dark, and feeds us bullshit. So I'm going back to the Grand Inquisitor. What about the kiss? The kiss. The kiss. Oh, the kiss. Uh, because I saw that picked up in... Um, there was a, You were watching a television interview, and uh, you speak about it in your book, and uh, this person is challenged on healthy food, and at the end of the um, conversation, he gets up and he kisses the people in the studio and he walks out has he been defeated or what so the kiss well the the kiss the kiss is mirroring mirror a mirror of uh the the story in the grand inquisitor where after the grand inquisitor has interrogated christ and accused him of all kinds of, of, of misleading humanity and uh you know saying that and that the whole idea that faith will save you and that, you know, basically challenging Christ on every major tenet of, of Christianity, um, realizes that he actually, and this is open to interpretation, and many, many more qualified uh, uh, lit critics than myself can weigh in on this, but, you know, that is that the Grand Inquisitor may have lost the debate, that in fact Christ's, not just a, his love, but his his the fact that he treasures human freedom and treasures uh, mankind, humankind, their, the cap- their capability to make up their own mind, wins the day. And Christ gets up and kisses the Grand Inquisitor on the lips, which is the only thing he does during the entire interrogation that is going on. He never responds verbally to anything the Grand Inquisitor says. So I take this... This, this scene and I bring it into my own version of this as a, and staged as a TV debate between a Christ-like leader of the food movement and a person who has just been recently designated as the U.S. government's food czar. Um, now, um, I think, I hope the point gets across. And I, and I, but, you know, there, there's still that ambiguity there. And I'm not, can't, and I can't say myself with a again, with absolute certainty that, um, you know, Christ won that debate any more than my, my sort of embodiment, my contemporary embodiment of Christ wins his debate. Um, you know, there are still arguments that have to be considered, like how we will feed a hungry world. But we have to take ownership of that question. Everybody has to take ownership. They have to participate. Citizens have to become involved. And this is where I go. It's not a case of sitting here and pontificating about, you know, is the industrial food system right, uh, or is it and it's or is it wrong? And this sort of alternative, localized, sustainable food system is right. I think the fact is that we all have to weigh in, 
And so I have my kind of a little mantra I use in the kind of in the end of the book, toward the end of the book, which is, you know, we all have to get our hands in the soil. We got to get our veggies on the chopping block and we have to get our voices down at City Hall. So it's you know, direct action. Yes. And it's also democracy in action. Right, right. And that's very useful for me to read that because uh, sometimes I'm taken by a kind of um, desperateness because I don't own any land, so I can't grow any vegetables, and uh, maybe I don't have the money to buy the um, to buy the organic mm-hmm. section mm-hmm. to buy, and. Uh, Sometimes I don't go to the farmer's market because I know that I'm going to spend every penny in my pocket. (laughs) But you have suggestions about what I can do, the listener, if I don't have those possibilities, growing my own food, for instance. I have have many friends in many cities who have no land, um, and they'll find a way even, you know, to have a small box on a a patio or on 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 a balcony. Um, you know, they'll, they'll find a community garden if they can do that, uh, or other, you know, public land that can be used. Uh, I tell a lot of stories about my guerrilla gardeners in my book who are people that are rather inventive in the way that they come to, uh, let's, shall we say, acquire land for food production. And not just food production, but also building a community. I mean, a community gets together around community gardening. Back to intimacy. Back to intimacy. All this is designed to take us back to intimacy. Because when we become more intimate with food and land and nature, you know, we become more aware of our bodies, uh, of, of the environment, of what's happening to other people who may not be as fortunate as we are. We become more socially responsible. But we also become more engaged as citizens at the same time. We start to think, hmm, what about this food? You know, wh- why is it? Why is the stuff that I'm buying in a supermarket have all this, you know, crap in it? Or, you know, why is it, uh, you know, doesn't, you know, it sort of looks good on the outside, but once I eat it, it doesn't taste very good. Um, you know, what's the story here? Uh, so people become more inquisitive. And that's when they become more engaged as citizens. And more engaged citizens lead to greater challenges to the industrial food system. And on and on it goes. So, you know, start with that little, uh, that little patio um, container of, of cherry tomatoes uh, or a, a couple of basil plants, whatever you can find. Because I, I'll trust me, that will take you to places that you're, you haven't gone before and ones that will open up doors to more intimacy. This is really, really good. And yet, I think again about what about the person who would, given the choice of organic carrots mm-hmm. or a bag of Doritos, mm-hmm. how, how, can, how can a guerrero, a food guerrero, <laughs> get in there and... And show. Well, there's an, I mean, there's another part I haven't, we haven't really talked about, which is the kind of my smart cooking mamas. And that's kind of the other, you know, that's the veggies on the chopping block. The fact is, and the sad fact among many sad facts in the food system is that most of us don't know how to cook. Um, it's, it's surprising, but, um, you know, the, the processed food items and the convenience food stores and the fast food restaurants all have really infantilized us when it comes to 
uh, food. Um, it makes us stupid. You know, rather, I'd say, I'll take that back, it makes us ignorant. You know, we learn, we forget how to, eat, how to cook something. We, we forget how to hold a knife in order to cut a carrot. Uh, it's easier to you know, take a package out of the, you know, the microwavable package and stick it in the microwave. Um, the industrial food system has been enormously successful in turning us in back into little babies uh, when it comes to uh, food preparation. So I tell, I, tell one, I tell several stories about how we, we can become better educated um, with, around food, not just, you know, I mean, food, where it comes from and what's good for you and that kind of stuff, but also how do you prepare it. And, you know, we've, we have to rebuild those kinds of uh, food preparation skills, those cooking skills. Uh, there's a great program in Austin, Texas that I profile. It's called The Happy Kitchen. And The Happy Kitchen takes... Uh, mostly uh, young moms, mostly Latino, because it's it's Austin, Texas, and uh, and and goes through a very basic, simple program with them to teach them how to cook, and it's not fancy, um, it's not elitist, <laughs> it's not taking them down to the Whole Food store and spending a lot of money or or even to a farmer's market, but they're they're working with all unprocessed, uh, whole foods, uh, from scratch. How do we? And you can make very inexpensive meals that way. It may again, it may not be organic, but though they try to find those those options when they're affordable. And I I interviewed thirty women, and every one of them had a great food story about how they had learned how to cook themselves, how to uh, make tasty, healthy meals for their family. Uh, many of them were very, very proud about the fact that they lost a lot of weight, even in the course of a six-week program, because they were they'd gotten the lard out literally. They had yeah, gotten yeah. The, they had gotten the, the sugar out. They they cut the calories, and they enjoyed their food much more. And their children enjoyed eating broccoli without you know coating it with cheese whiz. And the the remarkable thing, however, was that the women had increased their own confidence and self-esteem in the process. You know, they became, they became, they were just proud of themselves. They were just happy that they had been able to learn this and, and do something, do something well. And for many of these folks, sadly, this might have been one of the first things they had done successfully by themselves in their lives. And that was a great place to start. You know, food is always a great place to start when it comes to personal change, um, when it comes to community change and social change and even economic change and even political change. That, you know, all roads, you know, lead to food. And uh, I think it was like Kurt Vonnegut said once that, you know, I quote him, in a million, in the million years of my life, I, uh, for me, the story has always been about food. Nothing else really matters. And I think that that's pretty much true when it comes to looking at how individuals make changes in their lives and how we all make changes in our community. Do you think that um, we have a chance as a species and also to become um, more appropriate with other animals if um, we become more intimate with the earth? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I... Uh... I'm a, uh, I'm a meat eater. Um, sometimes that feels like it's a confession, like you, you've done something <laughs> dirty. I uh, hope that nobody takes it that way. 
but I tell a story again in my book about, um, I don't want to say how I became intimate with an animal, but uh, how I became, became more knowledgeable about how animals were raised. Um, a ranch here in New Mexico, where I, um, which is a, all their, all their uh, cattle are raised entirely on water, uh, mother's milk, and grass that's grown right there on the ranch. And I actually, uh, you know, ended up spending a day there corralling one, one calf that uh, what later became the one that was, went to the slaughterhouse and ended up in my freezer. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't have any sort of personal problem with that. But it, I, I became more attuned to what goes on in the life of that animal. What is, what is going on in that place, namely that ranch? What's important to that rancher? How does that rancher treat that animal? And even to the point of slaughter and processing, I visited the facility where mm-hmm. it was slaughtered. And it's a it's it's a it's about as the size, frankly, as a maybe a, a two car garage. It's not a, it's not a big facility at all. Uh, Compare it to giant slaughter facilities in in Iowa and other parts of the U.S. You know, this is one that can process about four or five uh, head of cattle a day on a good day. Um, and it was also one of the more, it was actually 10 people worked there, and which made it actually one of the largest employers in that small rural community. All these things began to connect, and I began to think, well, this animal, you know, if I had bought, you know, if I sitting down that evening with friends, eating steaks, having a good bottle of wine, vegetables out of my garden, I'm thinking that that steak on my, realizing, knowing that that steak on my plate has only traveled maybe a couple hundred miles from that ranch to that New Mexico slaughter facility to my table, compared to one that goes through a large route of, of a feedlot uh, to a processing facility in, say, Nebraska or Iowa, gets shipped to a warehouse from a supermarket distributor in Denver, and then comes back down to a retail level in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico. That steak has traveled 3,000 miles on that trip, whereas the one I'm getting from my ranchers traveled about 200. I like that carbon footprint. Yes, yes. Um, I want to ask you, um, what do you think about these enormous food processing, uh, meat processing plants in Kansas, Oklahoma, etc.? I mean, what this does not only to the environment, but to consciousness as a whole. I think, I think any of us who have, let's say, at least not lived or grown up in that environment, have ever, ever visited one of those facilities, you know, you will, a number of things will happen. You may never eat meat again. Um, you certainly may become a, a, a con- very concerned and uh, activist and want to change that. Uh, you, in effect, bear witness to something that is unpleasant, unhealthy, inhumane, bad for the environment, uh, exploitive of workers. You know, actually, you know, think about those facilities going back 20 or 30 years. They used to be the better paying jobs uh, in rural communities. They were, they were actually good neighbors in a way. Now, uh, you know, the wages have gone down to the lowest possible level. 
Uh, most of the workers are not from the United States. They're you know, largely from Mexico now or from, other, or from Latin America. Um, and uh, you know, the, the amount of, uh, the amount of uh, just, it's not, and as I would say, I would put the, the couple of categories here, not just where you know, slaughter and processing takes place, but also where the animals are raised, which are in um, factory farms. We, you know, the, 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 the USDA definition is a concentrated, or rather confined animal feeding operation, or CAFO, C-A-F-O. Mm. Um, and I write about them in my book. Mm. I, re- I write about how unpleasant they were. I even write about taking a, you might say, a field trip through one feedlot in uh, eastern New Mexico, where the person who managed to get me in was a local guy, a guy who'd been, who'd been in this world forever. He grew up, he was in his 60s, and he had been a part of this ranching and uh, agricultural community's entire life. It was third generation, in fact. And even he was disgusted by what he saw as we drove his truck through this uh, feedlot. Um, so, you know, they're, they're very, very unpleasant places. Um, and, you know, here's a, but here's, you know, so you can say, all right, maybe I can avoid this. You know, maybe I, you know, I can have this rancher friend uh, who has 18,000 acres and only raises three or 400 cattle, head of cattle a year on that. You know, I'm lucky in a way to be able to have that option. But more and more people have been trying to change that, you know, the system of food production, you know, which is inhumane, which is environmentally destructive, which is unfair to workers and even to the communities where they're located. Um, and we're, we're trying to change that. And then, you know, you've probably heard about people who have kind of gone undercover into these facilities and taken, you know, video or, or photographs. Yeah. Um, well, several states now are trying to pass laws that would make that illegal. Illegal. That's amazing. And um, so you, you would, I used the term earlier, how do we bear witness to what's yeah. going on? That's yeah. an important responsibility I think that we all have is to bear witness, to tell the stories in whatever way we can, if it means through you know, videography, uh, through photographs, through, uh, you know, whether it's through music or through literature, we should find ways to express ourselves when it comes to those kinds of you know, very, very unfortunate situations that we have in this country um, and unnecessary as well. Um, and that... You know, that kind of cracking down on that process of bearing witness of people who want to take photographs of, of CAFOs, for instance, uh, is, um, is being fought for by the industrial food system. They are the advocates in state legislatures where those laws are now being put forward uh, and, and show, at least in some places, show some promise of being passed. Um, you know, keep in mind that it wasn't too long ago, only a few months ago in the U.S., where uh, uh, 1,500 people got sick from uh, salmonella poisoning from eggs. Uh, half a billion eggs had to be recalled. Mm-hmm. And if you, nobody had ever gotten inside the facilities where those problems uh, um, first came about, but the more you looked at the history of those operations... The more you found that not only were they, you know, uns- producing unsafe and unclean product, they were also they had been cited many times for environmental pollution mm-hmm. from the, you know, excessive manure that they produced. They had been excited, um, rather uh, cited for um, 
uh, animal cruelty. Right. And they had been cited um, for uh, uh, bad labor practices, um, housing, uh, treatment of workers, um, um, in some cases, uh, child labor. So there's a, it's not, it's not just the safety of the product coming out of these places. It's a, it's, system. It's a much it's larger systemic. system, which is, uh, you know, which is at fault and which has many other um, uh, symptoms of failure, which is, you know, and how, how long, how sustainable is that? How long can you, um, you know, continue to pump out that much manure and have no place to put it and it gets into the groundwater, into the, in, into the uh, surface water? Uh, how many times can you keep abusing workers and animals before something begins to crash? And perhaps the you know this the the canary in the coal mine in this case is simply the the um, uh, the salmonella poisoning, and maybe we'll pick up on that and we'll actually begin to address the larger system. So um, we're coming around here. Mm -hmm. But I do want to ask you what you're working on now. Oh, okay. Well, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a, this writing thing has become kind of a disease and I haven't been able to cure except by doing more writing. And um, um, in addition to marketing my book, which every author except perhaps a dozen in this country has to do a lot mm -hmm. of, can't, de can't depend on the, the publisher to do that for you. I'm starting to think about what... Um, a new book might look like. And I'm, um, one thing I've been doing more, I do a lot of talks around the country. I give a lot of book talks. I give a lot of speeches. I do a lot of training and I have great, that gives me just wonderful opportunities to meet people. A few words about your trainings. Oh, well, words. I do a lot around, I do a lot around food policy. So my discussion about active citizen yes. engagement yeah. in the food system, well, I approach that from Communities organizing themselves, usually at a local or state level, in order to be able to become have their voices heard okay. uh, when it comes to you know legislation that would um, have an impact on the food system. For instance, it's, it's more complicated than that, but that's that's what I do. I'm trying to promote people to promote citizen engagement in our food system. Um, and when I speak on I speak on that topic as well, oftentimes. Um, but I'm, I'm also kind of thinking ahead and thinking that, well, maybe that isn't necessarily enough. Mm. You know, how do citizens uh, become more demonstrative uh, when the oppressor is technology or the oppressor is a corporation, a large food corporation? And what if that food corporation is kind of in bed with... Uh, politicians yeah. and the, the rulemaking and regulatory makers, uh, the lawmakers, uh, and they have so much wealth that they have that gives them immense access to lawmakers. And I'm thinking, well, geez, how can I fight back when that's the situation? Yeah. Uh, even when some of our biggest food charities are being bought off by the large food corporations, as many of them have been. Uh, and I, I speak about that. I, I don't talk about it in this book, uh, be, but because I'm becoming more aware of it over the last year or so. Uh, so with all that collusion going on, yep. what do we do to fight back? Well, I'm, I'm beginning to, I wanted to explore other forms of resistance. 
you know, everything perhaps from civil disobedience to nonviolent resistance to protests uh, to other acts of, uh, of direct engagement by citizens in an era when the enemy is not that obvious. Um, you know, Martin Luther King could take, you know, could lead the civil rights movement uh, in the 1960s, uh, the 1950s, and the 1960s because, you know, white oppression and discrimination was so apparent, the enemy was so obvious. Uh-huh. Um, Gandhi could do the same thing in dealing with, uh, you know, discrimination against Indians and, and British rule. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, when the problem is, you know, genetically modified uh, corn or soybeans or genetically modified salmon and... You know, the face of the corporation is, well, faceless. How do you resist? How do you fight back? And I'm exploring that topic right now. So stay tuned. This is very, very (laughs) exciting, Mark. Um, Thank you. A true activist. What would you like to say in closing to the people who are listening to us? Well, I'm going to go back to my mantra. You got to get your hands in the soil. You got to get your veggies on the chopping block, and you got to get your voices down at city hall, or the state legislature, or the U.S. Congress. Um, you know, and I can't remember who it was saying something about democracy, but half of it is about showing up. Half of it, oh. more than half, is about getting your voice out there. It's also about organizing and working with others. Finding groups with whom you share um, intimacy, intimacy, <laughs> become intimate. Uh, you know, we can go into. There's a lot of good books about food and sex, but that's not exactly where I'm going here. <laughs> what I'm really talking about is how do we get into the um, the you know the, the, let's let's use food as a point at which we can reinvigorate democracy and reinvigorate our our own connection to other people and our own connection to community and our connection to nature. These are so vital. And the more distance we put between ourselves and all those things, you know, the more, the sadder we're going to become, the more oppressed we're going to make ourselves. Okay, well, I want to thank you very, very much for your time. Thank you, Joanne. Future Primitive is made possible by the Marion Institute. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider supporting our work by making a tax-deductible contribution online at futureprimitive.org.